0: The world exists and it's full of sound. There was a reverence for songs which may or may not have words. The less you know about the language, the
1: better, in some ways, because you can just focus on the beats.
2: This is Come and Listen Jewish Food
3: for Thought. My name is Alyssa Kapnick. And I'm Hannah Kapnick. Today, we're talking about sound. This
2: is a museum for your ears.
3: Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who lived from 1903 to 1993, was the most important rabbi in American modern orthodoxy of the 20th century. In his essay, Redemption, Prayer, and Talmud Torah, he discussed the centrality of voice to the free person's experience. He wrote, When a people leaves a mute world and enters a world of sound, speech, and song, it becomes a redeemed people, a free people. In other words, a mute life is identical with bondage. A speech-endowed life is a free life. This idea of freedom through sound adds
2: new meaning to the idea of freedom of speech. It's arguable that what the United States Constitutional framers meant when they said, Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, was that people have the right to speak about whatever they'd like. The freedom of speech lies in the content of that speech. But Soloveitchik sees the simple creation of sound itself as powerful and liberating. We spoke to singer-songwriter Alicia Joe Rabins.
4: As a classically trained violinist, but an untrained singer, when I started writing and singing songs, which was like totally a shock to me and not something I ever really expected to do, I realized that using your voice is really different from playing an instrument or using the instrument of your voice is different from playing an external instrument. And I've been so struck by the fact that anything that's in your body, like any kind of blockages or tensions in your body are basically reflected in your voice. It's like a spiritual process of, you know, releasing blockages and kind of opening up. And so the freer you are inside, the freer your voice is and the freer you are to sing. Singing around the Shabbat table was actually a really big influence on me, too. I really loved, I mean, that's an example of where, like, often the words are kind of weird. Like, you're singing about, like, delicacies from, like, the 1600s. <laughs> don't even really make that much sense anymore. But, like, these beautiful melodies, and they've been passed down, and joining your voice in song. I remember thinking it was kind of the closest I would ever get to living in a musical, where people are just talking, and then they're, like, breaking out in song all together.
2: <laughs> The sounds of a Jewish meal are undeniably familiar. Blessings, more blessings, the cutting, tearing, slicing, ladling, and ultimate dispersal of food. Chatting, laughing, and then suddenly, and without warning, the unexpected swell of music. Music that sweeps over the entire group, interrupts conversation, overtakes children and adults alike.
0: people sitting around a table having a conversation would transform into a musical kingdom.
3: This is Elon Kaplan.
0: People would be talking, and when the music started, when people started singing, there was no talking going on over the singing. There was nothing of that. You know what's coming, but you don't know how it's gonna happen. You don't know when the first person is gonna stand up and start clapping. You don't know when you're going to feel like you want to go to the front of the room and dance along with everyone else, you don't know even necessarily what note of harmony you're going to throw in or how a certain note is going to affect you.
3: Ilan spent the end of his college career studying and writing about a synagogue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, a synagogue which has come to be known as the Shul. Named for the different rabbis of the Karlbach family who worked its pulpit. Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach was the rabbi there for a few short years in the 1960s. Shlomo was a magnetic and inspiring personality, prolific musician, and wrote melodies now sung in Jewish communities worldwide.
0: My favorite tune. Yeah, here's one I really like. It's Haneshama Lach V'Haguf Lach. The soul is yours, the body is your action, it's your movement. These notes that were sort of held longer than any other note in the sequence, for some reason, that sense of just holding that note, people people would cry at that part. Notes don't move very much. And you have that same progression, that same progression up and back down. And for people like that top note, people would hit that and on the way back down, you'd look around the room and like that's where people could sort of sink into the melody. Right, it wasn't about reaching that top and then sort of petering off. It's reaching that top and then having half of the rest of the melody devoted to slowly making your way down.
5: Music isn't an accessory
2: to Jewish prayer. It's the lifeblood. It's the fabric by which prayer is woven.
5: For me, music and prayer are both just different forms of each other.
2: This is Joey Weisenberg, author of the book Building Singing Communities.
5: The words can get in the way, and I'm always trying to find a balance between this pure, beautiful gut feeling that music brings and also allowing that spirit to infiltrate the world of words.
2: I've never experienced a place other than the Jewish world where singing is so common, so expected, so shamelessly forceful, dramatic, and inclusive. Joey suggests that being in what he calls singing communities provides for more than just the production of sound, but also the production of quiet, the production of meaningful silence.
5: In communities, a lot of times, the singing acts as that opener. Singing is the process by which we all wake up, come together, listen, pay attention, and then be quiet together and notice the world around us and are amazed by it. Aniagun is a wordless melody, and it's not only a melody. It's the entire system of sound and attitude, and feeling, and style, and emotion that's been passed down to us from our parents and grandparents. And it's the whole traditional feeling that's associated with the melody. These melodies bring with them an enormous power, and they're sung very differently from they might the way they would look on the page. So for those of you who read music, you'll see... Da, 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 da. But the way that it would be sung would be... All these little wonderful tidbits that don't show up in the printed page and that carry with them the, the beauty of our ancestors and help kind of root us in our tradition and in our place, but that also are just plain beautiful no matter what tradition you come from. And every time they, they come around, they might be a little different. What the melody should start to do is take you away you start to get the harmonies and you get a little bit of rhythm and this feeling of pulsation of just pulsing in and out. That's where you get carried away and the melody takes you somewhere. It tells a story and you get to hear that story and you can create that story all at the same time. So it's a way of musically moving somewhere.
2: If we're properly engaged in singing these melodies, Joey says, we don't only feel we're moving somewhere musically, we're moving physically too.
5: Slow melodies make you want to dig into the earth. So slow melodies have this rocking in and out power that makes you slowly shake your head, very devotional, very yearning. When you sing a, a melody, a slow melody, di da da you're expressing that you're yearning for kind of a perfection in the world that you're kind of aware does not exist right now.
2: Fast melodies, on the other hand, lift you up.
5: It has a sense of, of movement. It makes you want to dance a little bit. That's what fast melodies are, are for. They're for dancing. Even if you're not dancing. You know even if you're just sitting around a table it should make your soul dance a little bit give you this feeling of lifting your your hands up in the air tilting your head back and looking a little bit proud for a second which we can all use a little sense of pride a little sense of joy a little happiness and really we can do that whenever we feel like it we can always just decide to sing
1: magnified and sanctified be his great name.
3: This is Rabbi Eli Confer, Executive Director of Yeshivat Hadar, speaking about the Kaddish, a responsive communal prayer that glorifies God. It is recited throughout Jewish services and after study, and mourners recite a mourner's Kaddish during the year after a close relative has passed away.
1: Most prayers in in the prayer book are in Hebrew. There are a few in Aramaic, and this is the one that actually combines both languages. There is a theory that the the reason the Kaddish was written in Aramaic principally was so that people would have more access to it. In other words, the vernacular, the, the spoken word on the street was not Hebrew among the Jewish people, but Aramaic. And the theory behind that says that that would give people more access to the, to the language. You wouldn't have to know Hebrew in order to understand the the prayer.
3: Very few people in the modern world understand Aramaic, let alone speak it.
1: I mean, the, the irony of course is that now most people who pray know the vernacular, which is not Aramaic, and they know Hebrew to some extent, and they know Aramaic the least. So, in you know, a sort of ironic twist, the Aramaic prayer that was meant to be accessible became the least accessible. But in you know, in my experience of it, what people really uh, find themselves attached to in the Kaddish is less the translation and more the rhythm or the sound of the words. And f- to sort of get at the sound of words as opposed to the meaning of words, the less you know about the language, the better in some ways because you can just focus on the beats. So when you hear, you know, it has a certain rhythm to it. Yitkadal yit kadash Shemey Raba which is a lot of what people experience in their, in their minds when they say it, I think is very powerful on a very non-cognitive level where people experience the sounds of a somewhat mysterious language that perhaps to one group of Jews was ultimately familiar and to now current Jews is, is unfamiliar, but allows you to access a prayer beyond the meaning of the words and more into the sounds of the words.
4: My name is Alicia Joe Rabins, and I am a poet and a musician and a songwriter and a performer.
3: We talked with Alicia not only about singing, but the creative process in developing her music as the lead in a group called Girls in Trouble.
4: Girls in Trouble is what I describe as an art pop song cycle about the women of the Hebrew Bible. Each song is based on a different story from the Torah, sometimes from Midrash, about a girl or a woman. You know, Midrash are these legends that the rabbis created to um, often fill in gaps in the stories or explain kind of sticky points in the stories. And it's an amazing
3: literary form, really, because they tend to be these kind of almost prose poems. Alicia has her own Midrash-like approach, shedding new light on the narratives of the characters she writes about. On their latest album, Half You, Half Me, Girls in Trouble has a song called DNA, about the biblical story of the two sisters, Rachel and Leah. Rachel meets Jacob at a well, and they fall in love at first sight. According to the custom of the land, the older daughter was supposed to be married before the younger daughter, so Rachel's father, Lavan, covered the elder sister, Leah, with the veil, and tricked Jacob into marrying Leah instead of Rachel, his love.
4: So that's the basic story, which is already pretty dramatic and intense. But the rabbis take it in this crazy direction with this one midrash commenting on the story. And they say these sisters probably had a sense, especially Rachel, the younger sister, probably had a sense that her father was going to want to marry off the older sister first and was going to do some sort of trick to make sure that that happened. And since they knew there would be a veil involved, she could have probably guessed that he was going to try to switch the sisters under the veil. So Rachel and Jacob arranged to have these secret passwords that if it came time during the ceremony that um, the girl was under the veil, Jacob would say, okay, what are the passwords, very quietly. And if the person under the veil didn't know them, he would know it was the wrong girl, the wrong sister, and he wouldn't marry her. But then the morning of the wedding, Rachel realizes that this would also have the kind of unintended consequence of totally humiliating her older sister in front of everyone, and so she decides to give Leia the passwords and kind of give up you know, marrying the man that she loves and allow her older sister to do it rather than humiliate Leia. When I wrote my song about Rachel and Leia, I decided to focus not on the original story as much as on that midrash, so my song is kind of a midrash on a midrash, a commentary on a commentary.
3: While I was studying and part of the prayer community at Yeshivat Hadar, Eli ended a Talmud class early to talk about the condition of our prayer and to illuminate the importance of engaging liturgy at times not through singing, shouting, or even enunciating the words, but through mumbling. The merits of mumbling are often neglected in communities that see themselves as spiritual. I had always thought mumbling through a verse meant not paying attention to that verse. That singing was the way to really express intention and passion. That mumbling misses the poetry of a given psalm or section of liturgy. That a mumbler overlooks whatever spiritual or emotional context the text attempts to evoke. But that day, when Ellie gave us a mumbling lesson, literally making everyone in the room mumble through ashray, a commonly recited psalm, having us choose one word per line to say clearly and focus on and round the corners of other words, opened a door for me. I both started to experiment with mumbling and to generally experiment with level, speed, and amount of focus on the words to changed the way I relate to the lengthy liturgy. Parts of daily services became a meditative practice, a sort of rocking in my own rhythm, pitch, speed. What I did to the words, got louder or slower, mumbled or enunciated, changed them. There is something liberating about consciously sailing through letting each consecutive psalm bring me deeper or higher into letting go of myself, preparing to come into prayer. And song becomes a brilliant accent, especially in communal prayer, where we shift from independent mumbling to shared pace and pitch. Tune and rhythm can bring us to emotional heights that the words themselves don't access. Song is one extremely powerful way to connect with prayer to enliven liturgy that might feel rote, to feel the movement and sentiment in thousands of year-old texts.
1: I have very few but significant number of prayer heroes, I would say.
3: (laughs) Elie Confer again.
1: And I'm thinking one in particular, Rabbi Eben Leder, who lives in Boston, who has really uh, approached what it means to be a leader of prayer from the perspective of openness and spontaneity while still being grounded in a significant traditional practice. So when Eben leads prayers, he will often recite a melody, a wordless melody, to open up the prayer space. And he will recite it for many, many minutes at a time. Most Jewish prayer is typified by a rushing experience through the prayers because there's a lot to say. And I personally experienced the speed prayer mode as also a significant spiritual experience. But there is something to be said, in my opinion, for dwelling on a particular melody for a very long time. And Eben is somebody who can take a melody and weave it in and out of your consciousness without it becoming monotonous, but instead gaining in significance each time. Completely unrelated, but perhaps parallel experience is the way that David Letterman recites jokes on The Tonight Show, which is he'll recite a joke once and it's funny, and then he'll recite it a few more times, and it's a little less funny because you just heard it, and then he'll keep reciting it, until you get to like you know the ninth or 10th time he's saying the joke and then it's really funny (laughs) so there is some sense of like when you do a melody once twice three times it's getting a little boring but when you're up to the 15th 20th 30th time you're going through the melody then you've come to a place which is just a whole other level of experience
3: there are a host of reasons that there's a jewish culture of singing without instrumentation After the destruction of the second Jewish temple 2,000 years ago, Jews ceased to play music on Shabbat and festivals, a sign of mourning. Several psalms reference singing with harp, violins, drums, cymbals, and other instruments, but traditional Jewish prayer has come to include only one of the instruments described in the Hebrew Bible.
0: It's an ancient instrument.
2: This is Marshall Tobin, and he's holding the polished, twisting, three-foot-long shofar, the horn of most likely a ram or the East African kudu. The horn has been hollowed out and refined. It's shiny and smooth.
0: The shofar is limited in its range, and there's no valves like a trumpet or anything like that.
2: Tobin got his start playing more conventional instruments. He's a trumpeter.
0: Blowing the shofar, I, I feel more a religious experience, and I feel almost like at times I crawl inside the shofar and the notes come out.
3: The shofar is mentioned several times in the Torah. It's connected with trembling, sacrifice, wartime, and starting fresh in the new year. According to Maimonides, a 12th century philosopher, the shofar hints to us, awake sleepers from your sleep and slumberers arise from your slumber. It's no surprise that the sound of the shofar is meant to awaken us.
2: In the Torah, it's written that the instrument was used during wartime because the blast is so distinctive and so alarming that when the shofar was blown, every single soldier, no matter where they were, could hear and discern the sound. is in charge of blowing the shofar for a few different services during the year, and he takes great pride in that job. He says, beaming, that sometimes he can blow the shofar for longer than a minute without coming up for air.
5: And you hear the great sound of the shofar. And after the sound of the shofar, you hear the quiet, still voice. shofar gadol, vikol de mama daka First, there's this big sound that kind of wakes us up. And then you hear this still, small voice, which is where you really find the truth.
3: Come and Listen is brought to you with support from the Tikva Venture Fund, the Bronchman Youth Fellowships and Israel Alumni Venture Fund, and the maizel Museum. Thanks to
2: Elon Kaplan, Ellie Confer, Alicia Joe Ravens, Aviva Richman for the sneakoon. Marshall Tobin and
3: Joey Weisenberg. Thanks also to J Deb Records and Dan Greenman. Girls in Trouble, Joey Weisenberg's Building Singing Communities class. Thanks to Andrew McGuire and Eric Kuhn for the incredible Come and Listen music. Thank you to the faculty at Machon Hadar and to our friends and family.
2: We want to note that we made an error in our previous episode, Language and Law. We said that David Schneer told us that the Jews migrated around the year 1000 from Poland into the Rhine region, when in fact he had told us that the Jews were migrating or being forced out of the Roman Empire
3: and into the Rhine region. Check us out on our website www.comandlisten.com where you can listen to all of our episodes and short episodes. Check out featured artists and articles. Respond to what you hear and support this project. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Your hosts are Hannah Kapnick and Alyssa Kapnick
6: na na na